on air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, taking the weather systems out of the farm equation. Dual-layered film on the outside of the house. The, we have blowers that blow blow air into the layer between the bits of plastic that creates like a thermal break. Keeps high temperatures out, keeps low temperatures out ideally. So we try and keep a consistent temperature in here for the plants to, to create an ideal growing environment for them. And baiting feral animals using drones. So we designed an airborne baiting carousel mechanism that can be carried under drone systems. And it was really designed for those hard to reach areas in the pastoral region. Virtually from your fence line, you can only see, say, 10, 20, 30 metres inland, and there's a lot of ridge lines there that are very hard to tackle. Very handy, those drones, especially in remote areas. That story coming up. And the new hothouse that looks like the perfect place to grow berries. That story shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, almost the eve of Christmas Eve. Well, it is. Hope you're ready for the big day. Uh, we will check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the program. And it is official. We have a heat wave on the way for Tasmania. Details coming up. In a moment, a look at what the next weather system could be in the new year, which might lead to another drought. Plus, a look back on the livestock markets for this year with Richard Bailey. All coming up in today's program. Your thoughts on any issue via the text line. Also, if you want to say good day, happy Christmas, whatever, 0438 922 936. 0438 936 is that number. Well, first up today, rain should ease across parts of eastern Australia in the coming weeks, with the Weather Bureau predicting La Nina is showing signs of declining in strength. The bomb's Andrew Watkins says this means the weather would be warmer. He's told Michael Condon that as La Nina continues to weaken, the rain taps won't turn off completely, but overall a drying trend relative to average is now looking likely across much of the country. Well, typically El Ninos and La Ninas break down in, in late summer, early autumn. And uh, even if they resurge again, I mean, that's the time they typically weaken. Now, at the moment, we have seen a little bit of weakening of the La Nina, not a lot, but the models are suggesting that things will certainly start to ease over the coming months. And some of the patterns that we're seeing underneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean, the tropical Pacific Ocean, where we're starting to see things warm up there, are typical sort of precursors to the breakdown of La Nina. And we, a lot of farmers I speak to are worried that uh, we're going to go from one extreme to the other, from La Nina to El Nino. Is that, uh, you know, they're worried that it'll go from lots of rain to... It'll completely stop raining and we'll start going back into drought. How likely is that sort of scenario or is that even possible? Well, yeah, that's certainly possible. We, we have seen that happen in the past. About about 40% of the time, you swing from a La Nina straight into an El Nino. But we just got to remember that El Nino doesn't automatically mean drought or, or lack of rain. Um, it just increases the odds of that happening, but it doesn't lock it in. There'll always be some areas that uh, get through an El Nino okay. But, um, yeah, at the moment, though, a little too early to really make a forecast for that next year. There are some models that are heading that way, but at the moment, most of the models are indicating we'll, we'll sit somewhere in between El Nino and La Nina in neutral conditions, at least through the, through the autumn. And we have seen that long-term trend towards less rainfall in the autumn when we don't have a, a dominating La Nina. So 
we may see a little bit of drier conditions uh, sort of into the autumn of next year. But again, a little too early to make a definitive forecast. Well, that was the other question I had. People saying, you know, well, it'd be nice to return to normal. But then others saying, well, what does normal mean now if we've got a one and a half degree increase in global temperatures? Does new, does the new normal mean uh, hotter temperatures anyway and less rainfall? Well, that's yeah, that's a really important question, and it, it's one that yeah we get asked all the time. Look, of course, we do have climate change. We have been seeing that warming up, as you say, but arguably more importantly, we've been seeing a slow southward march of, of the tropics, effectively. So the big high-pressure systems over Australia have been moving a bit further south at about 60 kilometres a decade. It mightn't sound like much, but when you think back to the, the 1950s or something, you know, that's around 400 kilometres of southwards movement in our, our weather systems. So, yep, the, the new normal is probably different to what our, our grandparents and so on saw. It is hotter. There is more chance of, of getting those extremes, unfortunately. And it does suggest longer periods of dry interspersed with, with shorter periods of intense wet. And, and that's certainly what we've been seeing in the past decade. So that means that Port Macquarie has Brisbane's weather and we've got Port Macquarie's weather in Sydney. Well, it's a very rough rule of thumb, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, have seen, we have seen a shift uh, southwards in our weather systems. And generally, yeah, that's why we're seeing probably different weather patterns than uh, what, our, what our forebears saw. So, yeah, things are changing. We have to recognise that. And uh, it makes our job here at the Bureau a little harder, of course, because you can't just look at the past and automatically think that'll be repeated in the future. Now, that's why we've seen a change in those winter weather patterns that we talk about, you know, where we see those uh, systems slipping away to the south more often. Is that why? Yeah, basically uh, weather systems are further south than they used to be. So like for southern Australia, those cold fronts that used to come along and, and, and you know, come through Victoria or South Australia, Victoria, even Tasmania and, and up the coast you know, into New South Wales, yeah, some of them are slipping a little further south now and, and missing parts where they used to give very reliable rainfall. And we've seen that probably most noticeably in southwest Western Australia where the old winter patterns uh, from the 70s or in, and earlier really haven't returned. They're, they're just not getting those regular um, weekly or less cold fronts coming through. We're seeing it a bit more sporadic now. That's Andrew Watkins from The Bomb speaking with Michael Condon about the upcoming weather patterns for next year. We will check the latest on the weather about 20 minutes from now. Now to an agricultural story which virtually takes weather patterns out of the farming system. A berry farmer at Exton is breaking new grounds in Tasmania with a savvy new greenhouse. Complete with technology, he says, goes over his head at times. Andrew Terry says it's already having a positive business impact, being a cosy place for workers, while it also tricks the berries into being in season. He explains the setup to our reporter, Madeleine Rojan. The need for the, the hothouse here for our business has been to um, extend the season for various reasons. Um, obviously, just t- take, advan- take advantage of market opportunities on the shoulder season, early season, and late season. Also, for our staff, it gives uh, it's quite a nice environment to work in, especially on the shoulder seasons when it's uh, you're coming out of winter or going into winter. They can be inside here. Uh, also, 
the the guys that we bring in out of the Pacific Islands, they uh, gives them more work on the shoulder seasons as well, so it bulks out the the season for them. So lots of reasons we've done it. Yeah, also in, many increases in efficiencies, uh, yield gains. So trying to do, I guess I've always tried to do more with less. So um, in this structure, we can certainly do that. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, they all sound like very good reasons um, to bring this new technology in. So can you tell me how exactly it works? Uh, yes. So it's it's probably a cross between a a glass house and a poly, a traditional poly tunnel, field scale poly tunnel. It's, uh, I guess, a poly house you'd call it. It's a dual, dual layered um, film on the outside of the house. The, we have blowers that blow blow air into the layer between the bits of plastic that creates like a thermal break. So obviously keeps high temperatures out and keeps keeps low temperatures out ideally. So we try and keep a consistent temperature in here for the plants to, to create an ideal growing environment for them. And there's also the aspect of, you were talking about as you were giving me a tour, that it sort of mimics the seasons, is that right? So we're kind of tricking the berries. Yeah, I mean the idea is to trick the plants into thinking it's uh, thinking it's peak season summer uh, when, when we want them to, to grow. So yeah, we'll, we'll grow the, the plants are grown uh, in a nursery the season before and then they're, they're stored in, in cool rooms, similar to potato storage really, and uh, Get their get their chill hours up, and then we pull them out when we want them to uh, to crop. Yeah, and it's pretty early days still. But are you seeing any any impact? Yeah, so far the the construction of the the technology here has been very delayed due to the um, very wet winter we've had. So um, that's put us really really behind where we wanted to be. But there's a small section that we we managed to get in. Oh, still a bit late, but. It, it's it's close enough to to the timing and it's it's already showing amazing results yeah so really happy so far so do you plan to install this technology all over your um, property or oh look we still need to have a mix of everything so we still need that peak season traditionally so we'll we won't install it all over the property and it's uh it's quite been quite an investment so it's really just to, to bulk out those shoulder seasons as i said earlier and any any downsides at all? Uh, it, look, it's been a lot of learning curves. I'd say no no real downsides. There's just learning curves, which is uh, what it's all about. So for us, has been some some awesome learnings. Whether it's been the construction of it, and now now the plants are in here and growing. There's uh, years of years of learning ahead for us, which is really really exciting for the team to to sink their teeth into uh, gaining as much knowledge as we can about how we grow the plants in here. Do you have specific staff working on on running it? Uh, yes, so we've got a, um, a small team over here that manage it, um, along with our uh, horticulture team and, and our agronomists. So there's there's a bit fair bit of technology in there. Some of it's even over my head. That all the humidity controls and the fans and the blowers and the the venting of the roof. It's all sort of automated off sensors and things like that. So uh, yeah, there's, uh, we've got a, a really dedicated team of guys uh, following the technology, watching the technology, setting the technology. It's uh, it's really exciting to see the guys getting into it. Has it been ex- uh, expensive to install? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been expensive, but uh, I, I think yeah, looking at the early results so far, it should be it should pay itself back. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, the the idea in here is obviously the early and the late season production, and um, we're only using one plant to do that. We're not using two different plants, so so we're able to to utilise one plant, which which we normally do in the polytunnels as well. Um, but we sometimes use that plant in the polytunnels over two years. 
um, where we sort of laterally prune it back and it comes back again for a second year. What we're, what we're able to achieve in this house is we'll do the early season production, we do that lateral prune through the, the hotter months, sort of mid-January, late January, and then we're able to then get that second production that you'd normally get in a polytunnel in the second year, but we're getting that in the same season um, on the back end. So it's, it's kind of cramming two seasons into one in this structure. Yep. Yeah, and one last question. Is this a very unique um, thing that you're doing or are you seeing it with other berry farms? Uh, so far, this we've sort of mostly got a lot of the technology from what guys are doing overseas. There's a couple of companies in England doing a similar thing at the moment. Um, they were they were sort of six months ahead of us, but we were all sort of going through the same same pain, watching them go into their winter trying to build the, the polytunnel in England and then we sort of... Uh, also the poly house in England in the, in the winter and then we uh, we dived into our, our winter and felt the same pain that they did so yeah we're on, on the phone talking to those guys and, and watching what they're doing because they're obviously six months ahead of where we are so it's it's interesting following what what they're doing and their learnings and trying to trying to avoid things that they've uh, they've encountered that are that are you know impact um, negatively what we're trying to do here yeah. um, and one last very important question um, which berries best on a pav? Oh, all of them. You'd have to get all of them. Absolutely. Strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, put them all on there for sure. Beautiful. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for having me. You kind of agree there. That was Exton Berry Farmer Andrew Terry telling Madeleine Rajan about his new hothouse technology, bringing an all-around year fruitful season. And, of course, uh, any berry at all on the PAV for Christmas, definitely. Coming up, a look back at the agricultural year on King Island and drones being used to bait feral animals. Hello, it's Lucy Raiden from your drive show on ABC Radio Hobart. Thanks, Tassie. You've done a marvellous job raising money for the ABC Giving Tree. Your kindness will make a huge difference for someone or a family in need at this time of year. I'll be taking a break for a few weeks, but I'll be back in 2023. From myself, producer Dave and all of us here at ABC Radio Hobart, have a very Merry Christmas. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up a little bit later in the program, we shall look at a very different sort of a roast, a comparison to roast turkey on the Christmas table. That's coming up in the second half of the program. What's your year been like? That's a question we like to ask as December 31 draws near. On King Island, the community has had a number of challenges in the past 12 months, from the weather to shipping problems to housing workers for a reopened mine. Meg Powell caught up with beef farmer Roger Clemens on his tractor, enjoying the fresh air and a glorious spot of sunshine. Lovely day here, bit of an easterly breeze, but the sun's out. Things are warming up a bit, which is great. Beautiful. How has the weather been over there lately? Uh, cold, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like everywhere else? Yeah, yeah well, like everywhere else... Um... We've had a heap of rain all winter, pretty horrible autumn. Very wet winter and um, very wet spring. It's sort of drying off now. But you, can, you can see that the water's been lying around as I'm sitting in my tractor doing a bit of work today. It's not lying around now, but there's a lot of buttercups everywhere and it's um, a bit rough in patches. <laughs> Don't get bogged out there, I hope. No, no, we won't do that. <laughs> I'm out here in a paddock um, and I'm, I'm looking at a, a mob of cattle actually just over the fence. They're looking absolutely spot on. I must say, though, with that wet winter, um, we're probably two or three, four weeks behind in our weight gain. They're, they're whacking it on now, but 
sort of a bit of a slow start to the exodus, getting rid of your cattle, that's all. But anyway, we're getting there. They're flying along now beautifully, so that's good. Excellent. Fattening up as we speak, I hope. Yes, growing growing muscle, not fat. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Muscling up. <laughs> Beefing up. <laughs> getting finished. That's it. And how's that been for, for shipping your stock off the island, all that weather? There are a few moments. There was one last week where the um, eastern shipping line had trouble docking, nearly nearly caused a disaster. But anyway, off it went without unloading any trailers and, that, and not taking any cattle. Um, I suppose they got a little bit of flexibility, but really the whole shipping service is just a complete cock-up. It's an absolute disgrace. Not even being able to trade directly with Victoria now, and that's where most of our trade's always been. I mean, we have to ship our beef cattle to Smithton and, and especially JBS, the King Island beef brand, but all Tasmania's got access to Victoria except King Island. It's an absolute disgrace. So that change has happened this year, didn't it? Yeah, it happened earlier this year. And, you know, you got the minister claiming, oh, the freight, the freight task's doubled since, you know, we've been going out of Devonport to King Island. Well, what a joke. They didn't cart anything the other way because they were too scared to cart cattle and they hardly carted anything else anyway, except our essential services, i.e. groceries, timber, all that sort of thing. How has that affected your business? Oh, well... Most of our slaughter stock actually go to Tassie, but I know in the autumn this year things were pretty desperate and we needed access to feedlots all over the place and it was very limited access. Tassie's got one feedlot, but without a regular shipping service to Victoria like we've always had, always I'm saying, always since King Island existed, but limits your timeliness of getting rid of your livestock. I know Ruth Forrest has been... um shaking some things in Parliament, trying to get some attention onto this issue. Have you heard anything recently? Um, wait till after Christmas and you'll see how a campaign really gets going. Back to our other topic for now, the year the year wrap. Have you had good prices for your beef this year? Um, yeah, they've been good, consistent, um, probably best we've ever had really. Um, it's a great, great reward after years and years of hard work by most of us. So at last we're... Um, actually making some money to upgrade our facilities, infrastructure and that sort of thing. So it's uh, fortunate that King Island's a beef industry that uh, basically drives the economy here. So we're, we're a bit lucky that way. And like all farmers, we all spend it as soon as we get it. So, you know, that's life. Speaking of beef, I heard you had uh, something called a beef function on Saturday. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, we have. Race days, six race days here over Christmas, New Year. The second race day is usually the beef beef race day. So um, King Island Beef Producers Group and um, Adam Healy, who's the tourism guy, we put on a special function, Eat Your Beef, and we had beef and uh, lots of drinks and had a fantastic day. Beautiful. Actually, the perfect sunny, no-wind day, and uh, everyone had a great time. Yeah, it's terrific. And this was a uh, an all-you-can-eat kind of deal, I understand. Well, shall we say, eat, eat, eat and drink responsibly. <laughs> of course, always. Speaking of eating and drinking, what's uh, what's on the Clemens family table for Christmas this year? Lots of beef, I'd hope. Um, probably give beef, beef a miss. <laughs> <laughs> a bit beefed out. Yeah, well, I think it's probably time for a bit of seafood and the old ham and um, that sort of thing. Fairly, fairly traditional. Yeah, that's pretty... Uh, that's- 
maybe, you know, you can have beef every other day of the year. You know, <laughs> well, bit of variety. That's it, better for the diet. You can overload on red meat. No, no, you can never overload. <laughs> variety is the spice of life. <laughs> How, how's things looking on the island at the moment? I know the mine is moving along there. Are there more people around? Yeah, there seems to be a few more vehicles with mine signs on them. Um, it's the, probably the golfers are the ones we're seeing and um, just ordinary nice tourists. But there's a heap of golfers coming. That I, both courses have been booked out you know, for the last few months, actually. I think they, they slow down just over that Christmas New Year bit and then off I go again. The forward bookings are looking terrific. I'm a golfer, you see, so I'm a bit interested in all that. Ah, I see. So you'll be taking a, a turn around the green. Is that what you call it? I'm not a golfer. Um, you just turn up and play, <laughs> like any other sport. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. No, nice, nice to get away when you're on the out in the paddocks all week. It's good to get away and catch up with a few mates and enjoy the day. A bit of banter. Well, have a wonderful Christmas, Roger. Thank you. We'll try our best too. It's King Island beef farmer Roger Clemens telling Meg Powell about some of the challenges and joys islanders have faced in the past year. In regards to the shipping service, State Treasurer Michael Ferguson earlier this year announced his intention to launch an inquiry into the issue in 2023. Well, in parts of Australia, drones are playing an increased role in the surveillance and management of feral animals. In pastoralist regions where terrain is rugged, baiting and trapping wild dogs is almost impossible. Having an airborne system is proving to be a success. Over time, baiting drone systems have improved and the latest model is set to revolutionise wild dog control yet again. Pastoralist and Managing Director of Autonomous Technology, Nigel Brown, hopes his new drone will be offered to pastoralists in the future. So we designed an airborne baiting carousel mechanism that can be carried under drone systems and it was really designed for those hard to reach areas in the pastoral region. Virtually from your fence line you can only see say 10, 20, 30 metres inland and there's a lot of ridge lines there that are very hard to tackle and having an airborne system is the best way to get there. And the idea to bait by drone was conceived by yourself and uh, fellow pastoralist Maine Janor. From it being an idea until now, what success have you experienced? So we've got the system now, you know, up and running in Jingamara Mika Station. So we're doing a fair bit of, you know, flight operations and testings there on quite an extensive bridge line on those properties. So we've been having a lot of success with uh, airborne trials and dropping baits and geotagging where they are for future reference. Ground baiting and trapping is still said to be the most popular forms of managing wild dogs. Do you see the drone baiting system as a way of the future? Look, I really see it as a tool in their toolbox. Um, they do an amazing job on foot on in the car um, and trapping and baiting um, and just their wealth of knowledge is, is unbelievable and I think really the drone is just a, another tool to fight dogs and to get into those hard to reach areas or to have a larger coverage in a more efficient way. You know, very easy access to repetitions and, you know, baits are affected by rain events and obviously over time the bung arrows are eating them so... You know, it's something that you have to go back to and continue to keep doing to, to mitigate the risk of the dogs. So the drones are very user-friendly in doing a repeat flight over the same area and you know, just keeping on top of your baiting. You're looking into a hybrid, bigger fuel-powered drone just to maximise flying time. How's that going? Yeah, look, that's still in the development phase. We're just looking, obviously, you know, at the project on a whole for that to get a budget across the line. Um, Really having something in the four to six hours of endurance is, with 100 kilos payload is the holy grail for the type of work we're doing in a large-scale area in the pastoral region. 
And to think about this on ground being used in a, in practical terms, can we really see a big shift in the way dogs are going to be managed? Look, I think the baiting system really provides that larger scale coverage, but in areas that you traditionally wouldn't be baiting, you know, those hard to reach areas that are you know obviously very vast. And I think the drone brings that capabilities to doggers or partialists that you know, they can have a management plan that they can do you know relatively easy and and fairly fast and effectively. And of course, there's lots of financial constraints when it comes to high-end drone systems. For pastoralists listening to this who may be interested in moving to drone, what practical steps can they take? Yeah, look, there's re- really there's a lot of drones on the system on the market at the moment. Um, the ones we've been working on, obviously, you need to have a long, long flight time and a long payload, and they're really not common drones at the moment on the marketplace for just general people to purchase. Hence, why we went down that development route. But as our project matures, our goal is to try and get them, you know, larger scale productions, get the cost down, and make it more affordable for the partialists to invest in. Over the years, how have you seen the wild dog management style change? Well, I think there's just been a lot of talk about, you know, how to bring technology into into the space. And sadly, they've, you know, in a way been asked to cover more area with, you know, less doggers. So it's been looking at then what, what tools could we try to develop to complement, you know, less people having to do more, more area. Um, and that's really where we're looking for technology to assist in that field. So what sort of funding and support have you had to get the project moving along? So we just got another round of funding just to assist on getting feature recognition software on board the helicopter system. Um, in the early stages of our development, we were carrying a camera system singly um, and then the bait carousel for another flight where what we've seen to optimise the system, we want to be able to carry a bait carousel and then a high-end but affordable camera system on the drawing at the same time. So currently we're just developing the system further with a companion computer on board that the video signal is going through. Um, and then with our partnership with the University of New England, we're implementing some feral herbivore feature recognition software on board the computer. And then the aim of that is to go, be able to autonomously fly and find those feral herbivores from the air. It's amazing stuff. Pastoralist and Managing Director of Autonomous Technology, Nigel Brown, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris about the drones playing an increased role in the surveillance and management of feral animals, especially in the outback areas. Still to come on the country hour, a study of the Kunzia plants, also a feral animal on the Christmas table. We'll look at the livestock markets over the past 12 months and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. The head of the State Parliament Committee looking into the proposed AFL stadium at Hobart's Macquarie Point has warned the federal government could claw back its share of funding for the stadium through the GST. The state government released its business case for the stadium this morning, revealing the Commonwealth will be asked to pay for a third of the revised $715 million cost. Chair of the Upper House Public Accounts Committee, Ruth Forrest, says Commonwealth funding for the Royal Hobart Hospital was once offset by an equivalent loss in GST. Heavy fog has wreaked havoc at Melbourne Airport this morning, causing flight cancellations and delays, as power remains cut to thousands in Victoria, north after wild storms swept through the state. The disruption at Melbourne Airport is having flow-on effects at other airports, including Hobart Airport, at one of the busiest times of the year for the flying public. And China's three times Olympic weightlifting champion Liu Xiaojun has been provisionally suspended after testing positive for a banned substance. The International Testing Agency says the 38 year old returned the positive sample during an out of competition test at the end of October.
And Tony, to you and the Country Hour team, Merry Christmas and Happy 2023. Buon Natale to you, Michael, and your family. Thank you for that. See you in 2023 as well. Now, let's check the latest on the weather with Luke Johnston from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Good afternoon, Tony. And those sentiments for you as well and your family and the Weather Bureau people, all the best. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas to you and your listeners, of course. Um, yeah, for, for putting up with us and our, our nonsense at times. <laughs> uh, look, it's just it's a lot of fun, especially when uh, when there's no serious weather about. But uh, when oh, there is, uh, you guys are spot on with uh, the details. Um, now we're going to have a heat wave, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. So uh, today it's it's warm. It's been up to around uh, 25 and a half degrees in Launceston so far. It's been one of the warmer places in, in the state today. Uh, Hobart's only been to around 21. We've got a nice sea breeze in at the moment. But the general story over the coming days, including Christmas, is a, a steady, steady warming. So it's becoming slightly warmer tomorrow. Expecting uh, 23 in Hobart, 26 in uh, Launceston, 25 on Christmas Day for both Hobart and Launceston, remaining fine. And uh, then on Monday, 23 in Hobart, Seabreeze Limited, but 29 in uh, in Launceston. And then on, uh, what does that leave us to? Tuesday next week, sorry, 32 in Launceston, 29 uh, in Hobart, and potentially even 32 in Hobart next Wednesday. So heatwave, as, yeah. as you mentioned. It's uh, very likely we'll see our first heatwave uh, warning issued for Tasmania. So if you haven't heard about those, you might have seen the, the heatwave uh, forecast maps in previous years where you've got like a, a yellow for a low-intensity heatwave and orange for severe heatwave, those ones online. Uh, but what we're doing starting from October this year, when we're all talking about floods and stuff, we technically started our uh, heatwave warning service. So from Christmas Day, we'll probably issue our first uh, severe heatwave warning for Tasmania that'll cover a good chunk of the state, basically just giving people a heads up that uh, you know severe heatwave conditions are, are likely to be experienced in the first half of next week. Now, with those temperatures, are there going to be strong winds at all? Not really, no. So we're, we're kind of fortunate that uh, we're, we're not really having much in the way of significant weather, other than this afternoon's a bit unsettled with some afternoon showers and storms starting to pop up about most inland areas and, and parts of the southeast. But no real significant winds until probably at least late next Wednesday or Thursday with the next cold front coming across. We're going to be pretty much under the influence of a, a ridge of high pressure over the next several days that will be moving from our northwest in the Bight to the Tasman Sea. And then once it moves into the Tasman Sea early next week, that's when it brings the real hot stuff over us, particularly on Tuesday and Wednesday. Now, Luke Johnston, you're a man of synergy. You like a, a bit of synergy in your life. And there's a synergy. couple of numbers on Sunday that, uh, that you waxed lyrical about this morning. Oh, yeah. So um, the, the, the temperature forecast for, uh, for Hobart at the moment, and uh, is it still Launceston? And yeah, Launceston, Hobart yeah. And Launceston, 12 to 25 on the 25th of the 12th. I haven't been spruiking that too hard today, though, because when I got in, the first thing I did was check the forecast to see if that uh, was going to remain the same. Yeah. But it looks like the newest guidance for Christmas Day in Hobart could be 26. Oh, no, look, we'll go with it. We'll go with 12, 25, minimum 12, 12 to 25. max 25 on the 25th of the 12th Christmas yeah, Day. Yeah, when, when I saw that yesterday, I thought, this is this is the jackpot. I've been waiting eight years for that. Yeah, yeah, that's small things, but that's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. I, I like things like that. Um, 
There's and, more winds when there's not much weather. No. <laughs> and what about warnings? We've got no warnings? All right, no warnings for today. Tomorrow, the southeast coast and the southwest coast will have uh, some strong winds. Western northwesterlies uh, coming by the south coast. But other than that, no, no warnings. Okay, nice. so a little bit careful on the waters tomorrow, but uh, the rest of it for the coastal waters and swell? Yeah, sure. The uh, coastal waters and swell, well, starting starting with the uh, coastal waters, west northwesterly, well, west to northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots, tending more northeasterly down the east coast today. West and northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots uh, tomorrow, reaching up to 30 knots in the far south, tending a bit more east to southeasterly about the east coast in the afternoon with a sea breeze. The swell, west and south, southwesterly, two to two and a half metres today, gradually building to three to four metres by the end of tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, consistent westerly below one metre today, tomorrow. And the east coast has got a northeasterly uh, to one to one and a half metres today, uh, a bay decaying to around uh, one metre tomorrow, as well as the usual southerly coming up the coast from, from the west and south. And wave rider boy on the west coast at the moment, uh, 2.1 metre, significant wave height, and just over one metre on the east coast at the moment off Marat Island. Terrific, Luke. Thank you for that. You have a great weekend. No worries. Stay cool, Tony, and I'll talk to you on the other side of it. OK, I'll get through this heat wave. Good on you. <laughs> Luke Johnston from the Bureau. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now to the Kunzia plants and Indigenous people have used Kunzias for thousands of years, but one ag science student is just stepping into the field now and that's because he's very interested in the medicinal properties of this native Australian plant. Etienne de Kock is a recent honours graduate. He investigated whether infrared technology was useful for monitoring oil levels in the Kunzia plant. And they've got pretty tiny, tedious leaves to deal with, so he even developed a special tool for the job. Madeleine Rojan chatted him, well, chatted to him at least, while he was working at Westaway Berry Farm. Kunzia ambigua, which is the species uh, the plant I was studying, has a compound or a chemical called vitafloral, which is um, proving to be very promising for as used in cancer treatment because um, it, it's useful as an anti-cancer compound. Um, it hasn't been declared that yet, but uh, pharmaceutical companies have been working on it for a long time and they say it's very promising. So if it does come out as um, useful for cancer treatment, uh, I don't know, I feel like this, this plant will become very vital. Um, for the rest of the world. Anyway, so that's I guess, the background. Um, yeah, my thesis was uh, basically my thesis was about um, investigating whether near infrared technology, so which is basically a machine that uses infrared light and and the light bounces back off certain things, and then the computer will harvest all that information, and basically it can tell you stuff like oil yield or starch concentration or you know everything about the pond really, but. The machine's not smart enough to tell you what is what, but my honours was basically yeah, using this NIR technology and developing a model so that when I use this NIR machine on a, on a leaf, it knows what it's looking for, if that makes sense. Basically, yeah, the machine uh, just gets all the information and I'm telling the machine to look for just the oil. And this is great because originally to uh, work out how much oil was in a plant, you'd have to go out in the field, um, harvest uh, the leaves, uh, steam distill it, and then work out the weight and the oil concentration, uh, work out the weight and how much oil to work out the concentration so far, which is very slow, very expensive. Whereas this NIR uh, technology and my model um, is very 
uh, cheap and you can use it in the field, basically. You walk with the machine in the field and you literally just scan the plant and it'll tell you if it's a good-yielding plant or a bad-yielding plant. Mm, that's, um, that's fascinating. I, I remember listening to you at the seminar and you were talking about a, a tool that you developed specifically for. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Um, so the tool was it was for this NIR machine. So Quinzia, unfortunately for me, has very small leaves and the probe on the NIR machine is, I think it's, uh, I want to say, I don't know, 5 mil or 10 mil diameter. Anyway, you need complete coverage to get an accurate reading. Um, that can basically, it strips the leaves off the plant and then it compresses them so that it eliminates all the airspace and all the, yeah, so it's just it's like a big clump of leaves so that the machine can get an accurate reading. Um, and yeah, that was just the tool I developed. We got it, it was 3D modelled and then 3D printed in metal. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like such a tedious um, area to get into with those tiny leaves. And from what I understand, we have wild kunzia that grows and then some farmers have started kunzia-specific plantations. Which were you working with? Yeah, so right now there's no specific variety of kunzia. So all the farms that are harvesting, so mainly all our kunzia oil comes from Flinders Island. It's a big... Um, they're probably the biggest distillers and harvesters, and they just wild harvest. And they do have some plantations, but all their crops are just taken from the wild. And my research was also, yeah, just taken from the wild. So Kunzi and Bigger basically stems from the east coast of Australia. So that, this was another thing of my honours research was I using my te- uh, my model and the NIR technology can be used for screening purposes. So farms or um, nurseries can go out into the into the wild and choose good yielding plants for commercialization. So that because right now farmers have plants that all have different yields. There's no standard yield um, because they just grab plants from the wild, not knowing what makes a good plant or what, what, what yeah what makes a good plant. I guess. So yeah. I guess that's another thing that my my research could be used for is is for commercialization purposes and standardization in the future. It was obviously used by Aboriginal people for thousands of years. Did your study look at at all what they had been doing with Quinzia? Yeah, so I guess one of its common names is called tick bush. From from what I read is that, yeah, the Aboriginals used it as an insect repellent, like for ticks and stuff like that. Um, And there was, I can't remember who did the research, but in the past there was a research done on Quinzia, Quinzia oil and mosquito repellency. And, I mean, it, it did repel mosquitoes, but it wasn't as good as, like, say, like, citronella or, you know, the ones that you buy in store, like the, the inorganic insect repellents. But it, it did repel, and I guess the Aboriginals uh, must have known this, and that's how I got the common name, tick bush, I guess. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, Fascinating. So, tick bush and white kunzia. It's called also white kunzia because when it flowers, all the all the anthers, anthers of the, the male parts of the flower, they look like they're very long and filamentous and they look like almost like they're like heaps of spider webs. Yeah, so it gets, it's another common name, white quinsia, yeah. And uh, do you see yourself doing more in this area? Where's your research going now? Uh, my research, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of done with uni. I'm done researching. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, honest was as far as I was wanting to take it. Um, I'm not the person to research that. I am still very interested in essential oils, and that is, I guess, my my goal or my ambition is to start my own farm in essential oils. I don't know what I'm going to grow yet. That all depends on the soil, but, yeah, I really want to 
I want to have a farm in essential oils. I like the I like the distillation side of things. <laughs> yeah, and I totally understand getting over of uni because it's a yeah, definitely maybe a couple of years I might do my PhD, but I doubt it. Like, <laughs> no, I just want to work. Just want to use my hands, dig holes, you know, drive a tractor. I don't want to sit behind a computer anymore. <laughs> Yeah, former Honours Ag student Eddie Intercock telling Madeleine Rajan about his essential oil aspirations. He wants to get out in the field and grow the uh, the flowers after his research into the Kunzia plant. Uh, Mike in Sanford on the text line says, Hi Tony, I'm just listening to the hot weather for the next week. Hopefully total fire bend to be called by the TFS on the days of high temperature. Thank you for that, Mike. It's totally up to the uh, Tasmanian Fire Service for that. And obviously if that does happen, we shall have the details for you on ABC Local Radio. Well, the Northern Rivers business that turns a destructive pest into a premium product has played it up an alternative to the traditional turkey roast for Christmas. Fair Game Wild Venison Jonas Wijaya says that the roll venison roast made from feral deer is a more ethical and environmentally friendly option to the intensively farmed turkey meat. It's the first time the award-winning producer has offered the roast and the last-minute limited run of 30 was snapped up quickly through sales online at farmer's markets, a local supermarket and, of course, family and friends. Kim Harnan joined Jonas and his team, including Michael DeLask, at their end-of-year feast to taste the alternative roast. I know, it smells amazing. They smell great. That looks incredible. Oh. Alright, so who else are we going to slice this for? Chimichurri, Joshua? Just on the side. We're carving up here, we're carving up a rolled venison leg. It's got native thyme in it, uh, which is also, um, sourced um, locally from, um, well, we're actually growing some here, but also from Rebecca um, playing with fire. And we've got garlic in here, from which is also grown next door. Um, the leg also has some sweet paprika and some salt bush on the outside. And we've just cooked it over coals in the, the, the little Weber over there. It's supposed to be an alternative to um, what people would generally, traditionally be eating at Christmas. So it's an easy carve, something awesome for people to, to share, as we're doing right now. Well, without really necessarily... Succumbing to traditional meats, um, we, we think that this is an extremely um, good option, um, ethical, there's no farming involved, um, and especially um, around Christmas time when people tend to eat things due to tradition, uh, you'll find a lot of turkey on the, on the table. And so, um, as you can imagine, around these times of the year that's a lot of intensive farming um, for something like this so so we you know we're trying to get give people some uh, another option for their christmas spread uh, and something which um, is you know it's good for the environment it's it's a it's a pretty um, ethical option we reckon but how's it tasting everyone mm. amazing yeah is it good that's lovely yeah and you've got like a special chimichurri Chimichurri? Yeah, it's like just weed, weeds and yeah, it's what you would use on on some grilled meats. But we put some just some weeds like nasturtium and nettle and some garlic from next door again. And then we picked up some uh, bunya nut vinegar from Peter Hardwick that he gifted gifted us, which we've put in it, and some fermented garlic in honey as well. A lot of native, feral and wild foods on the table here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we've got some uh, 
some roasted potatoes with some salt and and some vinegar spray. Yeah. So a really good effort at a, at a carbon-friendly Christmas feast. I think so. And it's very quite quite healthy too. This is the first time we've tried it. We've sold heaps of these, so it's lucky that it tastes good. <laughs> Sorry, my mouth's full. So this product was born from a home kill that we did at our neighbour's place with some sheep, and I think we deboned one of the shoulders. Was it was it, was it a shoulder? We deboned one of the shoulders and then just chucked a little bit of native thyme and paprika and some garlic and rolled it up and and I think we ate it last Christmas or something and it was absolutely delicious. So we we decided to um, to put something very very similar together but with deboned venison leg. Oh, amazing. That's practically Christmas lunch, is it? Well, actually, that's what we're calling it. Yeah, this is our like breakup. Break up lunch. You must have noticed the shirts. What's the demand been like? You're getting lots of orders. Well, yes, we've been getting lots of orders, and we've we've made a, a whole heap last minute over the last two weeks, and uh, they're all in the cool room, and they're all allocated right now. So the market that we've that is interested in this product, they're all. Um, interested in the stuff that we have to say when we talk about the values about and, and selecting food and being being thoughtful about how you purchase and I think that, that you know the message around festive seasons and food around festive seasons is pretty strong generally so giving people an option online and, and, and making it pretty clear um, through our social media what we're doing um, you know a lot of a lot of our customers that are buying this already are very interested in something like this for Christmas. Yeah, definitely. Jonas Widyaya and Michael DeLask from Fair Game Venison in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales talking there to Kim Honan about utilising a deer for a roast at Christmas instead of the uh, traditional turkey. Now, if you are going to to do that, um, do a deer, just don't tell the kids they're eating reindeer. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, it has been a big year in the livestock markets, both here in Tasmania and on the mainland. And uh, let's head out to the markets now for the last time this year with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Happy Christmas to everyone. Yeah, and to you and your family. And uh, a big thank you to... uh, yourself for all these fabulous reports you do for us throughout the year and uh, it's been a few years now Richard. My pleasure, my pleasure. (laughs) I wouldn't do it if I didn't love doing it and uh, I hope that it's helpful helpful for people, both farming and non-farming people. Uh, We try and keep it as positive as we can and and as informative as we can. Yeah, Um, not much action at the livestock markets this week were there? No, 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 it's a week before Christmas. I mean some of the abattoirs close down uh, completely over the Christmas break. Some don't, like, for instance, here, one does and a couple don't. Um, so uh, it just depends a little bit. But basically, there were, there were a few sales on Monday and Tuesday, and that was it for interstate markets. So really not nothing nothing too dramatic happened in any of those centres. Okay, let's look back on the year. The cattle industry, how would you describe the year for cattle? I would have thought cattle producers would have been pretty pleased. They started off the year... Uh, with high prices and then very high uh, weaner sale prices, store cattle prices, and that continued really right through the year until probably the last month or six weeks. 
and there's been a little bit of a jitter on, certainly on um, on export cattle, and that has filtered through into uh, the store cattle markets, which really drive everything. The feed the feedlots have pulled out of the market a little bit, which has caused some concerns. We'll get a really good idea of where that's going in the first and second week in January when we see a big number of weaners sold through the Victorian weaner sales. I'm I'm sort of a, a little bit opposite to some people. I, I'm sort of of the belief that while the season's as good as it is through Eastern Australia, that I can't see it any major drastic things happening. Although at the moment, as we speak, the over the hooks prices on a lot of cattle have come back forty, fifty, sixty cents a kilo dress weight. So it's a significant correction, but I don't think it's something that probably surprises that many people. Yeah, what about um, you know moves this week to um, reorganise trades with China, talks with the, the foreign ministers? That bodes well for the beef industry in the future? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the minister put it pretty well, though, you know, this isn't something that'll be fixed overnight. You know, it's going to be a slow process. I think the major thing that'll, that's changed in China is that they've unlocked them or <laughs> let them out of their lockups, and um, I think that's where we'll have a where we'll see a bit of an improvement there right across the board. The thing, Tony, we don't know, and this applies to all of our industries, cropping everything. We just don't know what sort of effect these um, recession talks hap- uh, are going to happen right throughout the world. We we don't, you know, the sort of one minute you pick up the the press and they tell you that that the cow killing in the US will drop off next year because they've run out of cows because they've had terrible seasons and then the next in the next breath you see that you know Brazil and Argentina are going to export record numbers of, of beef so it's just difficult to get a good guy but I think we're pretty we're pretty good here in Australia you know we've built some very very uh, strong export markets beef wise Japan South Korea China US and then a whole heap of other smaller markets. So I think we're looking pretty good. The, the other thing that's going to happen sometime in the next, oh, I suppose, 12 to 18 months is that, of course, the cow herd has rebuilt fairly quickly over this good season, these good seasons. And so at some stage, we're going to have quite a lot more cattle around us than we've had for, you know, almost 10 years. So uh, that will be some interesting times. The other thing I suppose that's happened during, well, two other things happened during the year. One was at one stage there was a, a bit of a, a foot and mouth scare thing that went on that sort of rippled through the industry. And I think that probably shook up a few departments that were maybe dragging their chain as far as um, protocols went. The other thing um, that, that's been sort of pretty interesting, we touched on it briefly, was that the season you know, basically from Hobart to Cape York has just been enormous. In fact, in parts of New South Wales, it's still too wet. So, you know, that augurs well, you'd think, going forward in the beef industry. Lamb and sheep. Richard, it's been an interesting year. Highs and lows. Yeah, definitely. Started off the year at highs. I think we talked about it last week at the Oakland store sale where, you know, we were down sort of $50, $60, $70 a head on last year, remembering last year was a high, this time last year there were plenty of people paying $150, $160, $170 for store lambs. Uh, those same people now are paying anywhere from sort of 80 to $130, so quite a big difference there. Then during the year, the lamb market was pretty good early, but then during the winter hit a bit of a lag, and 
there's one thing I didn't mean to say on the cattle, and this applies to sheep too. Of course, we have had that difficult year in the slaughterhouses, in the abattoirs, because of the COVID situation and lack of numbers of workers, which has been a big hiccup right through the year. It certainly started to play up uh, with the lamb industry during the middle of the year. Because the season was late right through the country, and here in Tassie, I reckon we're anything up to four weeks late in places because it's cold and wet. We've been in a situation where the land market has held up very, very well right through the spring because there haven't been the numbers and there haven't been the numbers of really good quality lambs. There's plenty of these really good quality export lambs that are you know, quite anywhere from high 700s to early 800 cents a kilo, which I think a lot of pe- would surprise a lot of people. Now, I, a bit of a warning, I don't think that will continue on for too much longer because I think there'll be enough good lambs probably coming to the market fairly soon. There's going to be an issue, I think, three to six months of this of 2023 where there are going to be more lambs, a lot more lambs than we, we normally have in that period of time. It will be a matter of whether or not we can process them. Really good news, I was talking to the guys at TQM, Test Quality Meats, during the week and they were telling me that well, one of my reasons for the phone call was that I noticed on the slaughter figures that the lamb slaughter has gone up significantly. They're getting to the stage where um, they're almost double what they were killing this time last year, which is terrific news, and they were telling me that that will continue on and they'll, they've got uh, moaning rooms and freezers and new cryback machines and a whole heap of stuff going in there. So that will that's a really good thing. But getting back to the national scene, I think we'll probably see at some stage the land market come back a little bit there. Well, how far it comes back is anyone's guess. While the season's good, producers will be able to control the the, uh, the supply of, of, of cattle and lambs, so that will help. But the other one that's really taken a crunch is the mutton market, and, and that sort of started started early in the spring, but these last, probably last month or six weeks, we've seen mutton prices like we haven't seen for, uh, I'm guessing, 10 years or thereabouts. And I think uh, the reason being that they gave us was that they just can't shift at the other end. I am hearing now the mutton market's cheaper that they're able to shift it more readily, so that's good news. But I think we'll probably get used to sheep prices being more at this end of the level than than, than at the high levels we had, say, this time last year. Okay. Richard Bailey, thank you very much for all your reports this year. Looking forward to talking to you in 2023. Have a great Christmas and New Year. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us early in January on the country. Uh, We will have a digital program next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday because of the cricket and the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. So you can listen online at midday on those three days. I'll be back with you next Thursday, either lunchtime in the cricket if it goes that long into a fourth day, or we will be back to normal. Have a happy and safe Christmas with your loved ones. Enjoy the local produce and uh, we shall catch you next Thursday. But uh, midday online from Monday.